Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who can only be killed by a lead bullet. <laughs> I am the out of glass, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's fortunately that uh, I encounter so few lead bullets in my life that uh, that I have so right. far survived. But luckily, you being a a werewolf and vampire hunter, <laughs> right. Right. Almost exclusively encounter silver bullets to which you are immune. Right, right. It's impossible to be killed by a silver bullet unless you are a supernatural creature. Right. Uh, the high velocity has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And of course, if if it were, if a silver bullet were to kill you, we would retroactively know that you were a supernatural creature. Even right, if we absolutely. had not yet yeah. discovered that. I mean, yeah, it's some sort of nascent uh, supernaturalness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just waiting until you hit, like, I don't know, puberty number four or something like right, that. Right. Fourth I puberty know. is when the blood moon rises in the house of... Uh, <laughs> I don't know where this is going. I don't know where this is going. No, no, like, I love it. I love the fiction we're building here. Yeah. I, like that. I like that we've decided to do some world building in our podcast now. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we've already done some of that. I mean, there is the so, whole Scorsese thing. Yeah. So, uh, so the two know. things that are clear to the meta, the meta fiction of Lost in Criterion, Martin Scorsese is a time traveler, and and humans cannot die by silver bullets. So <laughs> they must there if they do, they are therefore some sort of new supernatural. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, no, I'm good with this. I, I, it's been a slow build. It took us 300 <laughs> and something odd episodes to yeah, get here. Yeah. But slow built fiction is the best fiction. It's true. It's true. It's it's uh, like a pot roast or something. You got to slow cook. Yeah, it's and, like uh, a it's like a Tolkien thing, you know. After right, we're, yeah, we need to take our whole life. This, after we're yeah. done with this, I'll write the Similarian version of uh, of. Uh, <laughs> right, they'll tie everything well, together real yeah, tight, it'll right? Be yeah, great. it'll be great. After we finish this. Before we get into the movie, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lost in Criteria. We do Me a bonus too. episode over there every month. It's always a non-criterion film uh, themed to something. <laughs> I come up with a different theme, but item five on the list is always, always, always Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, masterpiece probably. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I just actually on on the recording day, I just posted the August uh, the August poll. Though uh, I believe this episode will go up November first. So, but but I'm I, I'm pretty happy with the August poll uh, based on our recent watch of uh, William Greaves' Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. William Greaves, who we saw some more from this week, actually uh, yeah. in, in the form of interviews. Uh, but Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Uh, inspired me to do a sort of uh, a metafiction list of films that uh, that uh, turn in on themselves or break the fourth wall in what I think are interesting ways. Uh, so I look forward to figuring out who who wins on that. But to give you an idea of what the what the polls function as, uh, the movies I picked were the 1941 musical comedy Hell's a Poppin', the 1988. Uh, 
monster movies send up Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Uh, John Carpenter's 1994 meta Lovecraftian horror film uh, In the Mouth of Madness and the uh, the Stu- Steve Coogan starring biopic 24-hour party people from 2002. Uh, it's a pretty eclectic mix, I think. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> that, that checks out. Now, not, not all polls are that eclectic, but they are... They, are, they tend to be pretty but they eclectic, can, though. They can Let's be pretty be... eclectic. Um, recently for it, we've watched uh, uh, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Uh, which was awesome. Which was a great episode. Uh, one of my all-time favorite episodes that we've done over there was Aliens, with our friend Donovan Hill sitting in and being his ridiculous Donovan Hill self. Um, but yeah, we watch a... Just a real great mix of films, both good and bad, and sometimes surprisingly good when we think they might be bad, and sometimes surprisingly bad when everything about them suggests <laughs> that they could be good, like Will Ferrell's Kicking and Screaming. Well, Not everything I, about it suggests yeah, like, it could be good. Let's be honest here. <laughs> Nothing about this suggested it would be good. <laughs> I don't know. Will Ferrell, in the time that it came out, should have been yeah, able I mean, to do something Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, he's different. funny enough, yeah. and like... And like, but you know, it it ha- I mean, I but he was always during that era even playing the the, the odds game of being like, well, if I release seven million movies, some right. of them will be funny, right? And some of them might be good. Uh, I actually think that the August list did not include Stranger Than Fiction, just because I'm still not sure I can see Will Ferrell again. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing is I love Stranger Than Fiction. Now, is that is that love inseparable from Spoon doing the soundtrack? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> is it? Uh, but you know, I'm willing to admit my biases here. Yeah, yeah. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. If you want to uh, get involved with that, like I said, that's just a dollar a month. You not only get to vote, but you also get access to both the current and the entire back catalog of episodes for just that dollar. Uh, for a little extra five dollars a month, we like to thank. Those people on air, and currently we only have one $5 a month supporter, so thank you to Adam Speakerman for sticking that out. Yeah, thanks. A little above that, $10 and above, it's our highest tier, and that's still pretty cheap, right? Uh, $10 and above a month, we do something that I think is really special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently, and I get that printed up on postcards. And write a little thank you note or amusing about the film, a final thought about the film, uh, final thought about the current world. Always a final thought because I always think the world's about to end these days. It checks out. <laughs> all Everything you're saying here all checks out. So. But I write that up on that postcard and mail it off. And we also like to thank those $10 and above supporters on air. So thank you to Jason Westhaver and to Michael McGrath for your continued support at that level. I thank you. This week, we are starting another box set. Uh, we, uh, we just made it through the Monsters and Mad Men late, late 50s sci-fi horror box set. Uh, and we are, we are really switching gears. Uh, yeah, we are. To do... See, and this is very interesting to me because so often the Criterion Collection is about auteurs. And we talked about this with the Monsters and Mad Men uh, box set. So often Criterion is about the director uh, and the director making something uh, 
or being well-respected or whatever. With our last box set, the Monsters and Mad Men box set was more about the producers. And it was probably the first time Criterion seemed to be giving us a movie solely because of who produced it. This box set is all about an actor. Specifically, Paul Robeson. The box set is Paul Robeson Portraits of the Artist. And uh, it is, I think, seven films, ultimately, that star Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. And a couple couple of supplemental biographical material. uh, Short short films, short uh, documentary sorts of things. Um, So for the next month, for the next four weeks... We will be watching two films from this set each week. Um, And Criterion has divided those pairs into into themed sets as well. Uh, We're starting off with Paul Robeson Icon, which contains The Emperor Jones uh, and also a short documentary called Paul Robeson Tribute to an Artist. So that's our topic today. <laughs> the Emperor Jones mm-hmm. and sort of an introduction to who Paul Robeson is uh, and where he comes from. The Emperor Jones is a 1933 film. Uh, it is an adaptation of a Eugene O'Neill play. Uh, it was directed by Dudley Moore, uh, who'd wanted to... Uh, to produce a film version or to direct a film version of this since he first saw uh, first saw the play in 1924. Um, the 1924 production was actually a uh, it was bringing it back to, to Broadway. Uh, it had originally originally gone out in I think 1920 um, starring someone else uh, right. And Charles Sidney Gilpin was the original star. And Gilpin had a lot of problems with O'Neill's script. Um, Gilpin was. Uh, there's. In one of the. Not only is there the. Uh, the named documentary, uh, Paul Robeson Tribute to an Artist, but there's two other short documentaries. I can't remember which one actually contains. Uh, but, at, but at one point, one of the people describes Gilpin as an assimilationist. Um, and that's a term I may have used on the podcast before, but, it's, um, but I know what they mean by that uh, <clears throat> because of a book I know I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, Ibram X. Kendi's uh, Stamp from the Beginning. Um, and with, with Kendi, at least, the way he defines assimilationist and the way it seems to be used here is someone who believes that uh, basically racism could be overcome if uh, minorities assimilated into dominant culture. Uh, yeah, we talked about that yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Gilpin is a middle-class black guy and middle-class blacks in 1933 predominantly... Uh, are attuned to uh, the 1933 opinions of the NW- NAACP, which are very assimilationist ideas. And also this idea 
uh, that uh, if enough black people become uh, middle class and and exhibit the middle class values that that when we say middle class values, what we mean are are European American middle class values, right? right. Uh, that if enough black people assimilate to that that the white population will be forced to accept that black people are human more or less right which is a thing we know yeah i mean which which has never worked because because those black people and we see this in paul robeson life as well that that uh those black people who successfully assimilate or or are uh are the best examples of of some sort of artistry are always shown as within that white culture are seen as exceptions as exceptional negroes right, yeah right um so it doesn't work <laughs> but gilpin convinced that it does work and and so often both 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 white and black people are convinced that it will work you know the vast majority of white abolitionists through the 19th century were assimilationists as well uh with the big exception uh, being John Brown, uh, who actually listened to black people and held black people as heroes and based his own right. actions on Nat Turner and the Haitian Revolution and uh, Denmark Vesey. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, so the assimilationist view is very common, and it's very it's also very common for for otherwise concerned liberal-leaning white people to say, well, this is this is how it should be, so just make it like this and everything will be okay. Right. right? Um, and ultimately what assimilation breaks down to is whereas what we think as, as the big bad racist ideas, the, the people who, the white supremacist racist ideas who say... Uh, Black people are inhuman and can never become human like us. The assimilationists build on the idea that black people do lack humanity, but they can gain that humanity by becoming more like the dominant culture. Right. And that's still racist. All right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. right. All right. So anyway, all that background to say Gilpin, in his portrayal, uh, didn't like the use of the N-word. And this script uses the N-word a lot. Uh, yeah, it does. Gilpin didn't like it and pushed back against that. Uh, O'Neill believed that... O'Neill had based the character on someone he knew. A, uh, a longshoreman, I believe. Uh, so he knew a black guy who acted like this. Acted like his, his Jones character. So O'Neill was like, no, this is just reality. Well, it's not reality, first off, because it's it's a fictional play. But right. but but O'Neill says this character is real. Uh Gilpin, you're wrong. And basically fired Gilpin or failed to rehire Gilpin and instead got uh Robeson. Robeson then uh to look at the rest of Robeson's life. You see him uh, even even this early, even even late twenties before this. Robeson takes a pretty 
he follows the same path as, as Du Bois, really. Um, and and he and Du Bois seem to to know each other and, and respect each other's work. Uh, but Du Bois also started off as assimilationist and and realized the problems with that idea, and that's why he frequently bumped heads with the NAACP moving through the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, Robeson swings more left, swings more uh, in support of uh, overthrowing colonialism. Uh, But he gets the start very early, even earlier, again, than the Emperor Jones. But he still views... The character is real, so he portrays the character uh, as O'Neill wrote it. Kind of. He uses the language, for the most part, that O'Neill used. Uh, he, he pulls back a little on the disendem vernacular, but, uh, but he still portrays the character mostly as O'Neill eh, Neil wrote it. Uh, and he definitely says the N-word a lot, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and uh, what's interesting in that also is that if you know Paul Robeson, you know him as the guy who sang... If you know one thing about him, it's that he sang Old Man River and Showboat, right? And Old Man right. River was his song right? and became his song. And he pushed against the N-word in Old Man River. The original version of Old Man River said that word. And Robeson got the writers of that song to change it to Darkies, which was not incredibly better, but... Well, yeah, I mean, but yeah, the argument for that was, you know, in, in our <laughs> in our uh, viewing in many of the documentaries, <laughs> the argument was like, not much better by our context, but by the right. context of the time period, like was right. a pretty big improvement no, over what even, it was going to be. Even even looking back, there is a vast goal. goal. While none of neither of them are acceptable to say, I will say the word darkies. I will say the word exactly. Word. And, and so even even in modern context, <laughs> yeah. like you don't want to say it. There is a vast. You're not going to enjoy saying it. That's that's like uh, there's that that. Uh, I think it was a CNN or MSNBC segment where where the Chiron says uh, says uh, is uh, which word's worse, uh, cracker or the N word? And yeah, the it's, and it's always, always the answer is obviously always the one you, the one you won't right on say, TV, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so he gets the words changed to darkies, but but that also became a thing. One one very interesting aspect of the supplemental material on here is Robeson on Robeson, which is Paul Robeson's son talking yes. about his father's work, uh, and it's in that I believe where he talks about the frequency with which he changed. No, 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 no. It is it is portrait of an artist. It is the documentary um, where where it's framed as. His, the changes in life are reflected in the changes he makes to Old Man River, right? And how he sings it and the changing of the final lines from uh, we'll be fighting until we're dying to to I'll keep fighting until I'm dying. Or we'll be fighting right. or we'll be dying. You know, subtle changes, but changes that reflect a 
the way he views the song and the, the way he views the world, right? Um, but that was again his first. His first changes to Old Man River happened in 1929, right? Four years before right. this movie's made. Um, now Robeson did make some insistences uh, when being asked to be in this film. Uh, for instance, he insisted that it be filmed in the north. Uh, despite location shooting would be would be predominantly in the south. He wanted something filmed. No. They're working, I believe, out of New York, like the play was. Well, I mean, the goal was to shoot it in, I believe, Haiti, right? But right, like, wasn't right. It, I mean, for the for the the parts that were meant to be right. uh, filmed, right. that is also in, true in the islands. But then that fell apart because budget or something like that. If memory serves, yeah. what I read, yeah. Um, so things, yeah. Interestingly, the Criterion essay accompanying this, uh, called "Master of Disguise." Written by Hilton Alls, uh, who's a staff writer for the New, New Yorker. Um, that essay says that uh, Robeson originally was reticent to, uh, to take the role. Um, he was speaking to the, uh, the set designer, uh, who was a friend of his, uh, Uh, and said, uh, what's that guy's name? Cleo uh, Throckmorton was the set designer's name. Um, and he, and Robeson says, "You may know this kind of person, Mister O'Neill may this kind may know this kind of person, but I don't." Uh, so he's definitely reticent to play the character, but still well, went in. Right. <laughs> And did it well. I mean, was it? it I well. think it was the it was the Robeson on Robeson. I think where they where the where the argument is put forward, which I think is very valid, which was that like he in part was willing to do it because at least the character was a was a right. person, right? And that's full of stereotypes and full of full of stereotypes and bullshit. But like fundamentally, a human being right. rather than just what I mean. He's there's still, been, you know, there's he's still almost round. no he's parts. not just stereotype, right? Right, and and that's and that's meaningful, right? Because right. like, uh, because you know, for for African Americans at the time, the parts available are right significant. I mean, and like, and, I don't want to get relative about it. Yeah, I mean, and 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 to a certain extent, I think more than one person in this in these documentaries argued that while while Neil's writing. Is pretty shitty in the, in the in, <laughs> right. and is not is full of stereotypes and is bad least, in that sense. At least on he, a race relation, does actually stance. want to yeah. be. His goal was to actually write a story about a person rather than just. I mean, he's not trying to write like. A, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of a a better example, but I mean, like it. He's not trying to write just pure. You know, race-oriented garbage. He's trying right, to write a story right. about a person yeah. who could could exist. And yes, he definitely, certainly overplays his racist stereotype hand right. for sure. Well, another uh, another thing about film at this time uh, that that I my knowledge of this is is again drawn from stamp from the beginning. Uh, 
the NWSAP was was very concerned in its in its middle class concern about films that portrayed uh, African American stereotypes. Right. But the rest of the African Americans in the country, the lower class African Americans in the country, rather, um, were also just big fans of of representation and of sort of uh, making things their own. Uh, and I think particularly of of a character named Stepin Fetchett. Uh, he's portrayed by Lincoln Perry, uh, and it I believe it originated the character originated on vaudeville, uh, but but frequently was in was in film. And Stepin Fetchett is the stereotypical lazy ranch hand or 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 uh, common worker or whatever. Uh, whatever the plot calls him for, <laughs> calls for him to be, right? But he's also very much a tramp character. He's uh, he's tricking white people into doing his labor, or he's uh, uh, you know being so lazy that the white people get frustrated and doing it <laughs> do it themselves, basically. Right. Uh, and it is while he is stereotypical, he is also being subversive. And there is there right. is something that uh, you can see it in the NAACP response to say, well, these are bad films because they're just portraying a stereotypical lazy black person and, and you know, uh, illiterate or whatever. Uh, but millions of black people related to Step and Fetch It and cheered on Step and Fetch It because he was also sticking it to the people with power over him. Uh, and he was portraying a lower class life that they could relate to. Right. He was, he was somebody who was dealing with the same things he, they were dealing with, but then saying, Oh, screw them. <laughs> and, right. and, and overcoming it, not escaping it, but overcoming the situation. Right. But yeah, yeah, and and they talked about that. Some some various people in the sort of um, documentaries for this talked about that as well. Yeah, for this in the sense that like one way or the other, stereotypical or not, and and a bad person or not, all that stuff aside, uh, like Brutus Jones in this movie is an empowered individual. Like right. he makes his own decisions about his own life, and right. that is. That's a meaningful thing, right? And like, that's another thing I think the bad that, guy, right, yeah. or whatever. It's it's still yeah, right. And that's another thing that I think Robeson uh, Robeson latched onto in his wanting to portray this character. Um, now, in that regard, I think there's also an interesting assimilation in this argument to be made that uh, you know we ha- we have that uh, that speech he gives to Smithers about the difference between little stealing like Smithers does and big stealing like Jones is doing. <clears throat> uh, for the little stealing, they get you in jail sooner or later. Uh, for the big stealing, they make you emperor and put you in the Hall of Fame when you croak. Uh, you know, it's... Jones as emperor is reenacting the oppression that he has experienced yeah absolutely uh he is assimilating he he's he's reenacting he's reenacting the the white power structures that he has encountered before and and in that regard it's like the like that speech from the leopard right 
that you know where uh, as long as the power structures don't change, it doesn't really matter who's in charge because they all inevitably right. become the oppressor because of the nature of the structure of that power. Without dismantling those power structures, you've still got somebody who is going to act the oppressor. And Smithers, Smithers in his character and being one of the... Smithers is the only white character in the original play. Uh, there are a couple other white people added to the framing that that extends with the film. Uh, because the, the play itself is told in flashback as Jones is running through the jungle. Uh, it's It's... A surprisingly experimental play <laughs> in that regard too um so all of the backstory uh, everything that happens before jones gets to the island is basically outside the narrative of the play uh right so uh smithers being the only the only white guy in the in the play he's he doesn't hate Jones because Jones is oppressing the other guys. He hates Jones because he's jealous jealous of Jones, right? And Jones Jones tells him point blank, I'm better at this than you are. Right. <laughs> right. Uh Jones knows that Smithers, if Smithers could, would step into the role that Jones is function is is taking, right? And normally the power structures would say that Smithers would be in charge. But Jones has, has usurped that position. Uh, right. Which is a fascinating thing racially that I don't know that O'Neill even meant to do. I don't, uh, I don't know that that's not, I, I'm not sure because in one of the descriptions about what was taken, or I read the Wikipedia, I think it was, I'm not sure mm -hmm. about what was taken out of the original play was a substantially higher number of references in the flashbacks to the actual state of slavery. Okay. And and presuming that Jones is being hunted in the woods in a sense for reenacting the sort of re reinstigating the, the state of slavery mm -hmm. on the people I mean he right. has essentially created a new slave state, right? Right. That's that's one of the crimes for which he is being chased, right? Um, I think that O'Neill had to be aware of that. Yeah, you can't. I mean, in that being a thing that was directly taken out of the movie, because it was yeah. sort of drawing that parallel that would make that would make people uncomfortable in that era, right. is I think that tells me that O'Neill is. I think we're, we we need to. I mean, I don't want to be too bold about it, but I think it seems to me from everything that was described to me that like. O'Neill strikes me as one of those very, like a very, someone who was trying to do something good who was just very, to a very to a extent, very misguided about right. like, right, like you know what I mean? Like it, it's that classic thing where like he lacked the because of the sort of like society structure and things like that, lacked the awareness to know that he was not doing a good job of the thing he wanted right. to do, right. but had good intentions in mind. With regards to what he was trying to say, and I and I do think that to a certain extent, especially when you view uh, what, what's the name of the um, the traitor's character, the traitor character, Smithers. I forget his name, or yes, Smithson. It's it's one in the film and and something else in the play, and I can't. The remember. reason why I hesitate to do that is yeah. because it, like whatever it is 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 also in its own weird way this like 
hyper stereotypical. Oh yeah, like colonial, like yeah. And as the only one, as the only like, white character in the play, he is this colonial middle manager, right? Right, so, and not even a good one. Like yeah. he is, he is, he is not. There's a reason why he's not the hero of the play, right? Or the movie. Right. And I think that is that is very meaningful. Like right. that that in and of itself has to be meaningful, right? right? That the only white guy in the film is a is a is a dumbass who can't right. find just, his ass, just an can't idiot. tell an ass yeah. from his hole in the ground, basically. Yeah. Like, yeah, is is meaningful, right? And then the the one you know we don't really have a lot of characters in this in the movie or in the play. The you know our main character is is an African American person who has taken. The bull by the horns, so to speak, yeah. is all very meaningful. I think in terms of, uh, and then having his the natural result of what he does be essentially make a new slave state right. is is some is definitely commentary. It just has but, to. Be. Yeah. Well, there's something there's something in that where you know this is a black person who has found power, but he has found that power at the expense of other lower class black people, right? Right. And that that in and of itself is a critique of the assimilationist value system, right? Right. Period. Yeah. That that the the NAACP when it was more associated with this assimilationist idea and and to a certain extent it still is. The NAACP complains about the state of Hip hop and rap music as much as Tiver Gore ever did. So, right. But uh, but what I mean to say is that Gilpin rejected uh, rejected Jones as written because Gilpin thought he was just a ball of stereotypes and did not represent the middle class values that Gilpin wanted to represent. Right. But ultimately, Jones does represent those middle class values. He just represents the dark, uh, the dark side of those middle class values. Right. Yeah. I mean, he yeah, exactly. You get into this. Yeah. Exactly. Like. Right. What What does that mean? Like. I mean, yes, he represents <laughs> all the idea that like all this is built on something, and that's right. presumably the oppression of somebody else. Like. Right. Yeah. It's. Um. Yeah. It, it, I. I. I like I said I cannot honestly believe that that uh, O'Neill wrote this whole thing and didn't like oh right. I just accidentally did this right, thing right, like right. I mean I know Fox News regularly actively accidentally <laughs> makes us uh, arguments for for socialism I understand that that happens right but like that's that's in like Chiron's and like and like accident you know those are those are not full length plays you know like it just yeah, it seems un- uh, unlikely, and I think, and I think that has to be. I I think when you get down to it, that's to a certain extent what Robeson saw in yeah. this, right? Like, and and looking at later on his career, he doesn't just become a civil rights activist; he becomes quite radical. Right. Like, right. I mean, not 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 so radical in action in the sense that he's not like you know, it, there's so many different sort of interpretations of that word, right? But yeah. Um, Particularly but, in the I mean, time frame we're talking about, too, right? Right, and but I mean, he is he is arguing for a for a social society, right? Throughout a, a, a better part of that sort of second half of his life, and that is there has to be. I I can't believe there's not a through line, yeah, 
in there. O'Neal? And then, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, not O'Neal. Uh, uh, Robeson is a cultural icon, right? He is. Right, period. absolutely. Paul Robeson is a cultural icon within American society. Uh, but he's a cultural icon uh, who the U.S. Justice Department uh, banned from having a uh, passport. Yeah, the, the Department right? of State, yeah. The Department of State. From, yeah, having... um, you know, he's a cultural icon who the uh, the national records of uh, college football wrote out of an All-American team. Right, he played right. for Rutgers. was was the only black play, the only black student at Rutgers at the time, and the only only the third black student at Rutgers. Period. Uh, overcame what seems to be some particularly abusive uh, hazing to still make the football team, and they went all America. And then in the early fifties, because of his uh, activism. A, a book on the history of all American teams, specifically of college football, uh, just didn't mention him. Just wrote him out. Yeah, the only the only ten person team right. as they as right. they right. refer to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, it's absolutely right. like, and that's a thing that and and he knew that that's what the results were right. going to be. Right, like he was well aware of yeah. what's going to happen, and he did it anyway, right. which is part of what makes him so spectacular. Right, right. I mean. He didn't accidentally stumble this, into activism. Like that's was, not what happened. Right. And maybe, maybe he slowly became more activist. Uh, but many people do. Most people do, in fact, <laughs> who become activists have have a a path they are traveling from right. being much less concerned about the things they're activists about, um, and including Du Bois at this in this same time period. Uh, right, du-, du Bois obviously a bit a bit older than Robeson, I believe, uh, but uh, you know, and in the in the periods just after this, uh, you know, your your big two of twentieth century uh, African American activism, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and and Malcolm X both followed paths from much more complacent worldviews, right. uh, steadily toward. <laughs> Socialism, if not Marxism, outright. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Robeson is. I was I was very fascinated uh, by the things I learned about Robeson, particularly in the documentary um, "Portraits of an Artist" or "Portraits of the Artist." Um, Robeson performing "Old Man River" during the Spanish Civil War. At a ceasefire, basically happening. Yeah, while yeah. he performed, you know, but performing for the Republican Army, but but the fascists being so uh, so attuned to the cultural icon that this guy is, that they stopped fighting too to listen to him sing, right? Um, the idea that Robeson started performing. Uh, folk songs from around the world and learning them in their original language to perform them in their original language is fascinating and, and wonderful. I yeah, no I know. Yeah, that. for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, this was a guy who deeply cared, uh, not only about himself and, and sort of his people, but all people who had been affected by oppressive colonialist power hierarchies. Right. Uh, 
and the Emperor Jones as a critique of power hierarchies. Uh, I think that that reading is definitely valid, not just because I'm the one who had it, but uh, yeah, you know. no, I, I definitely think but, so. It, I mean, whether or not, like, you know, depending on how far down that line of thinking he was mm-hmm. can determine how much that's true but it has to be at least a little bit true yeah there has to be that i mean like and yeah some of the things coming down to like you know the fact that like the character was much more round than anything on offer at the time i'm sure all helps right but like push comes to shove i think there must be some motivation there and the fact that like oh yeah this movie is all about hierarchies just getting like flipped up fucking side down and then also still repeating themselves over time and space and has to be meaningful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was one of the more interesting things about this in the documentaries is all the sort of different field of reactions that people had to especially specifically this movie. Yeah. Like within within all the people interviewed in the in the uh uh in the uh in the documentaries is like, I mean, it really runs a full gambit of like feelings about the movie and, uh, and like reactions. So it's really fascinating to listen to people describe their sort of personal reactions to this because like on a very, on very much on a surface level, this movie is, is reprehensible, right? I mean, it just, yeah. And, and that, that, you know, as we've been talking through it, we, you can dig deeper and find things inside of it, but like when something's presented this way, you may not feel any desire to do so, right? Right. Uh, right. But then again, like there are lines in this movie that had the audience cheering, right? And very specifically, one that they described in the in the uh, in the documentary is when he threatens Smithers or Smithson or whatever his name is. Like I, you know, I've I've killed a white man once before, and I'll do it again. Right, uh, is a fascinating thing because, like, when you it, it it puts you in a very specific mind frame to think about what the audience must have been thinking, right? Right. Like, I mean, it it, it puts you into the frame of mind of thinking about the possibility that, like, a huge pr- uh, enough people in the audience somewhere deep inside wish they could say that to somebody right sometime right right like that's a fundamental desire that like and and that makes sense for for people in in a, in a state of dep- of uh oppression right like you would want you that's the thing you want to be able to say right you want to be able to turn the the tides on the people who oppress you uh and then you know yeah it's just it's just a fascinating to think about because that that being the applause line of the movie is a really uh, kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Culturally, you know, it, it just... I can imagine that there are a number of white audience goers who would see this movie as straight comedy. Of, of Jones. And I think that's, I, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Jones, Jones thinks he can be like us. Uh, there are, there are black audience members who says Jones thinks he can be like white people. Uh, and, and that is part of the, the absurdity and the critique presented in this film. 
that that being like white people should not be the goal because being white people will just end in more tragedy for everyone right being right emulating that yeah. society we need to rework society not not emulate not bring more people in but there's you know there's a lot of different ways i mean there's also certainly a lot of white people who saw that line for for the horror that smithers sees it for too right right absolutely i'm sure yeah, yeah. absolutely right um I'm thinking just, you know, broader culturally, you know. But that, well, sorry. Like, the thing about that line, though, is that that line is 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 kind of spectacular. Right. In that it literally means a different thing to to every person. Right, right, right. Who it watches can, it, right? Like, yeah. Because if you're, if you are inherently very, very racist, which, you know. Right. Uh, I, some very high percentage of the audience watching this movie is and well, was. Given right? given that ninety nine percent of this film's cast is is black, uh, there's probably a good chance that the very very racist white people just never saw it. But that's true. Um, I mean, well, let's assume you you've you've been stewing in a <laughs> in a stew of racism your entire life. So even your our baseline person is pretty super racist. Okay, let's just let's just assume that right because that that seems like a fair assumption about our society at the time that this movie came out. Okay. Um, yeah, you're right. Like the super duper racist, like, I mean, the actual KKK members are probably not seeing right. this movie, but enough people clearly saw this movie because it was probably in their minds, as we talked about a comedy, right? Um, so if you're pretty racist, you see this and then presumably you see that line it, it, and it just, recertifies a stereotype you already have, which is the violent black man. Right. Right? Like, I mean, you don't even have to... You don't have to process it any deeper than that because it just proved to you the thing you already know, which is... And that's that's certainly one of of the stereotypes, I'm sure, that Gilpin was... Was was upset about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it it is very reasonable. Yeah. That is a very reasonable argument to make. Um that that is a stereotype that is dangerous. Yeah. Uh, it is It is part of what keeps oppression going, right? right? But at the same time, there's a reason why that is also an applause line for a whole different class right. of people who are watching the movie. And then keep in mind that, that n- n- I don't know how many people process it this way, but like if you set race aside even as well, there's an entire class structure oh, of the yeah. United States at the time oh, yeah. for whom that should be an applause line, right? Because it doesn't even – even outside of, of, of thinking about race, we get into just like class differences and the fact that like, you know, this is, is the same thing, right? Like over – you know, kind of turning the tables on the sort of the exploitive uh, capitalist class. Right, but like, right. I mean, it's just – it's just it's an interesting thing because like for literally every kind of person you could conceive of who could watch this movie that means a different thing. Yeah. And and that that class stuff definitely plays in here too, you know. He's he's punished to hard labor, right? You know, right, absolutely. And, yeah. and hard labor itself is is capitalistic exploitation of uh of a criminal class. Uh and you know, when when we introduce it is impossible to separate the idea well, it's very much possible for a lot of people, but it should be impossible <laughs> to look right. at to look at the state of prisons as sources of cheap labor that they exist to this day, uh, and and not also connect that 
to the idea that the more we criminalize things, we are the lining the pockets. We, yeah. we are lining right. the pockets of the people, particularly in a private prison system. You know, we, uh, you know, the more people well, who I mean, are by, imprisoned. By, by, instituting a, right. by instituting a private prison system, all we've done is double the profits, is, right. is essentially right. what it comes right. down to. One way or the other, hard labor right. is always done for the profit of somebody. Right. Like, it's never... Right. Like it's it's fascinating because like in 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 growing up, as I'm sure it is true for you too, you are exposed to the idea of hard labor in a very cartoonish way, where right. it is it is just labor for labor's sake, right. and that just doesn't happen. You're always working to benefit right. somebody. Right. It's never like ah, we're going to make you work to teach you a lesson. I guess about hard. I don't know what that lesson would be, other than the fact that like I, I can't even think of one, but. But it's not. It's never that anyway, right? Like it's never that thing anyway. It is. Ah, we are going to use you as free labor. That's what we're going to do with right. you, right? Uh, and that's you know that's Virginia, you know, Angola, the one of the largest state prisons in the country for many many years, and and the the primary prison of Louisiana was just a converted plantation, right? And right. plantations. Yeah. In themselves, we we very rarely take a real look, but plantations are prison labor camps. That's all they are. Oh, so yeah, I mean, like yeah, I mean, it's just whether or not you have the right. the sort of like the uh, the bullshit. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. I can't think of the word, but like how you ended up in that place, right. whether or not what veil of right. legitimacy right. that has over it. Is is all that really separates yeah. that out? But to separate uh, to, to to get back to what you're saying about about we can we can separate the class and and the race here and and to a certain extent, I, I'm reminded of something that Michael Eric Dyson uh, said uh, in uh, in one of his books. I can't remember which one offhand right now. Um, goodness, what was it? Tears we cannot stop. Um, Dyson points out that. Uh, Class, class, and race are intrinsically tied so much in so much of American society, uh, but more often than not, race makes class hurt more. Uh, right. A, right. A poor black person is worse off than a poor white person, uh, and we can see that in even environmental studies that show that pollution is worse in uh, middle class Hispanic neighborhoods than in poor white neighborhoods. Right. Uh, yeah. But. Uh, <clears throat> But uh, on that same same toke, the the uh, the class oppression he's throwing off, he also reenacts in in the same way. Even Absolutely. if it were strictly yeah. class, he kills a prison guard at the labor camp that he's in, uh, and then reenacts the same abusive uh, power structure that that prison guard was maintaining. And even even if it weren't also tied into race. The the class the class stuff is there, right? Right. Well, and that and that's and that's what I mean. I think makes it all so interesting. Is like uh, I mean, one of the things that makes this interesting is again my argue, my statement was more like if you could, right? No one can. Like, you can't. Can you can't actually never, in American of, society, particular no, and Western society, can. more like, in general we, we too. Can't do it. Yeah. But I my my argument was more like if you could, then then every single person in the in you know. Like the lower uh, economic class of America should also cheer that line, right. uh, but they won't because 
racial fear has always been right. the sort of like we talk about like <laughs> religion is the opioid of the masses. Well, you know, racial uh, you know fear has always been right up there as well uh, in the United States at least. And uh, yeah, I mean you can't separate it out. But like, yeah, he reenacts it because you know, and I think there's there's certainly an awareness there, which is that yeah, we're going to keep doing this unless we actually break from the entire structure in, right. in its entirety. Like, you just took over the already existing structure. Right. You're not going to make it better. And and Robeson, throughout the rest of his life, fights to overturn power structures. Right. He wants to, yeah, he wants to tear that structure down. Right. And, and that is, it is fascinating because, like, I don't know enough about the civil rights movement to know, to, to make any informed claim whatsoever. Okay? Let's be very clear about that. Yeah. Um, but I found it fascinating that like the protests uh, about him performing in the United States focused heavily on his ties to socialism. Right now, obviously, is that is that being used as a as a smokescreen for racism? I'm sure it is. Yeah. But then again, you're in a time period where I'm not sure people needed a super deep, thick so- smokescreen for racism. There's, like it just doesn't feel like they did. There's an interesting aspect to that that, uh, that again, uh, Stamp from the Beginning brings up of, uh, of American foreign policy through the Cold War being more about branding right. than, than almost anything. So... You know, and you see this on in in all sorts of ways. Anyone who rightfully points out disparities in American culture is shut down because we're trying to convince all these post-colonialist countries that we're the better choice to align with economically than the Soviets, and right. inherently, communism uh, has that appeal to a post-colonial society. Um, uh, the Soviets themselves did not pull that off quite as quite as well as they could have. Well, and, and uh, yeah, but, absolutely. But, but I mean, uh, it's all very yeah. yeah. But uh, one reason Robeson is is has his passport revoked is because he is being vocal about the treatment of African Americans in American society, uh, and uh, and it makes America look bad. To people who we would like to take money from, but cannot take money from by force anymore. Uh, well, and and if you look at a sort of a history of a, American post air quotes post colonial, uh, <laughs> right, right. There are uh, certainly times when we decide we can still take it by force. Yeah, uh, and, and the reality of the matter is, is that we 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 all, it, it has always been very fast. This whole thing has been very fascinating to me because yeah, every time there is a discussion of fighting for the hearts and minds yeah uh which we talked about directly in other episodes but like the film hearts and minds uh, Uh, yeah exactly there's also that that always is is accompanied by like actual physical violence right it always is right and like the reality of the matter is is america never actually fought a purely cultural cold war we fought a lot of proxy like overthrowing of governments like I it would be fascinating, a fascinating uh, mental exercise to imagine what percentage of the world would have ended up either communist or socialist 
had America decided to actually practice what it preached and let people just decide what they wanted, right? Because a lot of those post-colonial societies chose, actively chose to try to upend the system because if you're in a post-colonial society, you're like, why would you ever choose the system that just spent the last however many hundred years fucking you over? You just, you know, that just... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's right. a- actively that was not the choice that was generally being made, right? From what I yeah, so have seen so another another way to sort of uh, hammer home what what Kendi was talking about in Stamped uh, that I think is is much more easy to to digest as a physical example. Uh, think of the civil rights movement uh, and 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 King in particular. What King did and King's King's insistence on nonviolence within his movement was solely was also a publicity thing, and that's not bad. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. But it was it was to make the world see the violence inherent in the system as it existed absolutely, in the yeah. U.S. And you get someone like LBJ in office who says, "No, the world can't think that that's what America is." But that is what America is, so we need to change things. And then right. you twist his arm enough that he signs a civil rights right, I, <laughs> act. Right, absolutely. Right? Um, and it doesn't fundamentally uh, change things to what they should be. But but it makes enough of a change that, that we look like the good guys on a national sta- in an international stage. A little more, right? And and you, yeah, I mean, exactly. You you the, yeah. yeah the the game the the fight for hearts and minds is primarily the hearts and minds that are primarily the hearts and minds domestically, right? right. Like I mean, right. More than anything else, right? Is is convincing America that America is the best, so that they'll continue to fight and fund, right? What's happening right. overseas, right? Like yeah. I mean, yeah, it's great to look great overseas, but as we've seen. America will chuck that out the window at, at the drop of a hat, right? right. Like, we'll just right. be like, nope, we don't care what anybody else thinks because that's not what's most important to us right now. Right. Whereas and, keeping the people at home relatively satisfied with the way things are being conducted yeah. does fundamentally have uh, – there's some need to do that. Beginning with the decline of the Soviet Union, America has been much less concerned about yeah. how we are viewed internationally to the point where you really cannot – you cannot shame the American power hierarchy into change anymore. You just can't. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's why, like that whole like, oh, look at how how they're treating us, broadcast out to the world. Well, that has no relevance anymore. Yeah, we you're only we trying would. to convince the hearts we of really can't. other Americans at this point. Right, that's all you care about. Right, and you know, and and the cracks in that were very early on, and that's why why we think. That there is an ideological difference between MLK and Malcolm X is that Malcolm X was someone who publicly acknowledged the uh, long-term problems with continuing with MLK's path. He looked at the future and and he knew, you know, this is only working because the power can be shamed at this point. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and actually I think only can be... It can only work in that one time period. Right, right. Le- legitimately only really? actually works in that one fundamental time period because right. there is a Cold War going on. Right. Like, 
anytime prior, anytime after, that's yeah. just not going to work. But like you know, hey, you know, use what you got, right? Like use use the time that you, that's right. at hand, right? And you similarly, know? there were there were many instances in uh, in early nineteenth and late eighteenth century America of um, you know think of think of even uh, uh, Douglas's own slave narrative. Um, you know, so much of the slave narratives that came out, or even Uncle Tom's Cabin, written by a white woman, uh, so much of it was meant to say, look at how this actually is, know how this actually is, know what your society is doing, and be ashamed. And everyone's like, ah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, everyone except for, like, you know, it's yeah. a, that's an interesting thing, right? Like, it's it's... There's always been that gradual shift, right? And that is the result of people constantly exposing right. what's going on, right? Like, there's a reason, you know, you talk about the, the arc of, of justice and things like that, right? Like, yeah. it is, it does shift. And the reason it shifts is because, not because one person writes one amazing book. Right. Or makes one amazing movie. It bends because everyone who possibly can does write right. that book or makes that thing. And that does very slowly shift what the way people understand now now as we've we've seen like it also shifts back at the drop of a hat like it right. can just do it right it's it's a it's a rubber band that will bend back if you, if you let go on the tension even a little bit it'll snap back much faster than you were able to move it uh but then again like america's such a weird place right now i don't even know what like the Overton window might as well just be like right, right. the gaping hole in the side of a house at this point, right? Like, I mean, it is, it is so wide as to just not encompass. There's just nothing it doesn't encompass at this point, right? Yeah. Um, well, there's plenty it still doesn't encompass, but all of that is far left right now. Well, but even even I would say though that like not as far left as it could go, but like it has expanded leftward as well. Like, yeah. I mean, the things you can get away with saying and oh, writing, that is, that is possible in terms without That's being true. black, blacklisted is, yeah. has grown. That, that is a, that is wider than it used to be. That's, it, has That's it grown fair. much f- quicker on the right? Absolutely. <laughs> like it lets me clear. It is not parody. The, the two are not, are not equal, but, uh, you and I can make this podcast where wherein we, we which might as well be called the the, the Marxism hour <laughs> and like and uh and neither of us are presumably going to lose our job yeah so right. I, that's meaningful and that's the result of a lot of people doing a lot of little things all the time right 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 uh, so yeah the Emperor Jones. It's a complicated movie with <laughs> yes. a complicated yeah, yeah, it history. Is. It's a movie we forgot to talk about. Well, no, but no, whatever. No, listen. No, listen, I know. I'm just not. we. There's so much around this movie, especially yeah. because they included the DVDs or the the uh, not yeah, DVDs, the documentaries. On yeah, the, the documentary. I'm yeah. a very tired person right now. <laughs> um, yeah, the the documentaries. The, like the the scape around this is just so wide. That, like when when we decided that we like when we like led into this book i was like how in the, or oh god man you can tell i'm tired this is not a book this is a movie uh when we started into this it's just like how are we ever going to talk about this thing as a whole as a specific unit and so it turned out it's pretty hard we had a hell of a conversation but yeah like well of course you know when when the other uh 
the other included title this week is a uh, documentary about his life. We obviously have to talk about his life too. So right, exactly, and it's just it's just interesting because yeah. like this is this is a hard one. This is just yeah. absolutely to my mind a hard one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating movie commentary wise. Uh, still very uncomfortable with the fact that it uses the n word like twice a minute. But yeah, and I'm I let's be clear, but, I'm not going to watch this movie again. I think it was worthwhile to watch once and internalize and and if nothing else i i mean robeson's an amazing actor and like what happened he doesn't he does an amazing job in this movie as well i don't know that i've ever seen a movie that uses the n-word more than a queer and karen quentin tarantino film (laughs) yeah no i mean this one i mean maybe this is where he got the idea that that was okay i don't know maybe uh well, next week we are continuing through our Paul Robeson uh, Portraits of the Artist box set. Um, next week it is Outsider, the, the overarching. Uh, we'll be watching Body and Soul, a 1925 race film. Um, race films are an interesting genre of film. They're, they're sort of indie outsider films made by and for black audiences. Um they I wish the Criterion Collection had more things that qualify as race films. We certainly haven't seen one yet. So uh but they but as a genre they kind of existed from I think nineteen eighteen into the fifties. Uh but we'll also be watching nineteen thirty uh film Borderline. Uh which uh is it silent as well? I think this might this one might have sound. But, uh, yeah, I've I've lost track of which ones yeah. are silent and which ones aren't. Uh. Yeah. So we've started we've started with the the uh, film that put ropes in on the map, and now we are bouncing back to some earlier work, and then through the rest of it, we will see later work uh, as well, um, and talk more about him biographically. I am sure. Um, oh yeah, I'm sure. And like I think as we move through this, we're going to get a better and better yeah understanding of his politics through his performances right. as well right. i assume which which is definitely one thing that the criterion box set is trying to do here to give us yeah the, i think so yeah. a full yeah. round understanding of who who robeson is as a as a creator and as a performer so we look forward to finishing this up thank you once again for listening to lost in criterion i am as always the adam glass with me as always john patrick or Tari dorian and we'll see you next week
have been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.